This is Thinking Out Loud, a podcast about current events and Christian hope. Have a hard time putting those two things together? You're not alone. Our timelines may be filled with bad news, but Christ remains on his throne. So what does it mean to live in the light of that truth rather than the shadow of our never-ending dumpster fires? That's the question animating this conversation between Nathan Rittenhouse and Cameron McAllister, two Christian apologists who believe that true hope and realism go hand in hand. So let's think out loud together about current events and Christian hope. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. We have a bit of a challenging yeah, challenging is the right word, I think, episode for today. And it's one that we uh, very nearly didn't do and considered not doing. It's in reference to an article that David Brooks wrote for the New York Times called The Dissenters Trying to Save Evangelicalism from Itself. And on first glance, that might sound really niche. Uh, and we worried about that and said, this isn't that relevant. On the other hand, I don't think it's something that we can just pass up. Um Part of the reason for that is, is let me just, I, I jotted down as I was going through here, here's some names and concepts, institutions, and ideas that are all woven together in this article. So Christianity Today, Russell Moore, Liberty, The Falwells, World Magazine, Walter Kim, National Association of Evangelicals, Tim Keller, Jesus and John Wayne, Kristen Dumay, uh, Karen Swallow Pryor, Lecrae, Beth Moore, David French, Al Mohler, RZIM, Donald Trump. Um, any article in the New York Times that has that list of organizations and names in it, we probably need to talk about. The other thing is, is that it's heavily in reference to a lot of political things. And Cameron and I both are hypersensitive to the complexities. Well, I think the way Cameron says it is we honor complexity. So we know there's a lot to that. So let's try not to let that be a, um, a distraction in the conversation to hear what's being said in this article. But I think that this will be highly enlightening to some people. It will be a deep affirmation to many other people, and it will be a bit of a I told you so for a lot of folks as well. So we're going to journey through this together and reflect on it and try to make sense of it and weave in some of our own stories and things we've observed. And actually, this article, in a, in a to a significant degree, explains the existence of thinking out loud. Can I be so bold to say that? Mm -hmm. And I'll get Cameron to comment on that and then lead us into a description of what's going on uh, in this article and why it might be worth your attention. Yeah. So I think, let me begin with a story that connects to this article, first of all. So I think um, I can be a bit chronologically challenged at times, but I believe this was about 2019 I was on a podcast, and we'll include, by the way, we'll include David Brooks's article in the show notes for this episode, as well as this podcast that I did. But it was, I'm going to say it was one of the more uncomfortable podcasts I've, I've done before. First of all, the host, very understandably, there were two hosts, kept asking me all these really personal questions, and this was when I really real recognize that I don't like talking personally that much, <laughs> even though my wife has been telling me for years, you, you know, you should open up a little bit and be a little bit more approachable. It's not like I'm trying not to be approachable. So there was that factor. But the other one was that they asked me about probably toward the end of the show. They asked me, so Cameron, when you're talking to young people who are walking away from the faith, what is the most challenging issue that you're dealing with there? 
just very, very directly asked me that. The answer that I gave took them both off guard. Now, you have to remember, this is, so I think this is 2019. So what I say, what I said to them, and I'll give you the answer, was I think now would sound pretty old hat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get it. We get it. We've read all the David French articles. We've we've read we've read the Brooks articles. We we get what you're saying. Yeah, moral hypocrisy. Yada yada yada. But at the time, it still wasn't really being. It was being received as completely new. And also, you can they they resist a little bit of what I what I said. So here's what I said. In 2016, that was a watershed moment, generationally speaking. Setting aside the issue of politics, just for a second here, the we're talking purely in terms of a person's moral character. And if we're looking at the moral character of Donald Trump, the takeaway of for a lot of young people was, here is a man whose character seems to be antithetical to all of the values and all of the convictions that I was taught my entire life. And now that is all suddenly being traded in. It seems to be a lot of that is being traded in in the name of political convenience and political expediency. And so that was creating massive cognitive dissonance, which continues to this day. And I also pointed out that, by the way, this is what happened in 2016. This was a lot of this stuff coming to a head. It had been there, dormant for a long time, building, but it came to a head at that point. It became undeniable. And at first, my host said, well, okay, that's interesting, okay. That it, and you can almost hear them shifting in their seats. They just weren't expecting me to say that. I don't know what they were expecting me to say. But then they said, well, maybe this is more of, would you say this is more of kind of an emotional response? You know, they, they, they're, you know they, they get very worked up, a lot of these young people, and they maybe are just getting kind of overwhelmed by their emotions, and their reason is just a little bit overwhelmed by emotion. And I kind of said, maybe, but no, not really, because I think what we're talking about is something, events that are challenging the plausibility structure of, and let's, in this case, it would be evangelicalism, the evangelical church. But you could go broader almost and say, in regionally, theologically conservative Christians, that pl- plausibility structure was, was challenged here. Now, the other really interesting factor and tragic and ironic factor is I was, at the time, working for Ravi Zacharias, and this was 2019, this is before everything really came to a head and everything became, every, the world became aware of what he was up to, and before the organization basically imploded because of those moral failings. And so I'm, I'm giving this answer completely unaware of my own part in that story. So there's an irony there. It's a, it's, a, it's a kind of, there's a shadow hanging over the whole thing, but it's very instructive. I bring that up here because when one of a friend sent me this article by David Brooks and said, this essentially is, this really gels with a lot of what you said in that interview where you were so uncomfortable. Because I remember after the interview, it, it lasted over an hour and I was just sweating through the whole thing. And I, I, that's not usually, usually I'm fairly calm and collected. But I just, I said to this friend, my goodness, I, I think that was disastrous. I was so nervous. I can't believe the questions they were asking me. I can't believe what I said. But so there was a clear link now to what, what David Brooks is, is saying in this article. And so he is 
making he's making the case that this is more than simply a couple of political disagreements sensibilities that are changing it has to do with a real challenge to the very to the very stated convictions of the church there's a, there's a really powerful quote that he uses that why don't you read that quote nathan because i think it could probably yeah i'll give you a second yeah, here i think it can count maybe as the thesis of the article okay you got it yep so yep this is from um russell moore who said we now see young evangelicals walking away from evangelicalism not because they do not believe what the church teaches he said but because they believe that the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. Right. Yeah, so... That's 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 the quote. Yeah, and I think whether you agree with that, by the way, or not, and that, that is a debatable quote, but whether, that is, that's a significant argument. And I think that needs to be... I think that's what we really need to wrestle with because that goes beyond emotionalism, that goes beyond political sensibilities. That has that's a that's a significant argument. So okay, Nathan, so, when you when I sent the article to you, yeah, I'm wondering what your what are your thoughts here? Yeah, let's let's loop back. So you you did a 2019 story. Let me give you a 2016 story. Um, to say, yeah. So anyway, up through yeah 2016, I was living in New England, doing a bunch of a lot of a lot of stuff with young adults and college age students. And then uh, went down to a church in Texas and an older uh, Sunday school class there. And this was, no, actually this might be, yeah, this was like 2016 pre the election, I think. Um, and the, the same question I got, what's the, what's the biggest question that young people have about Christianity today? And I wasn't making a moral judgment. I was a answering, this is legitimately the biggest question that most young Christians and non-Christians have. And so I said, in a Sunday school class in a church in Texas, the biggest question that young Christians have is how could a Christian in good conscience vote for Donald Trump? And that had probably about the effect that you would imagine it would have <laughs> given the location and the church. But what was interesting is the surprise at the surprise. So the, the issue wasn't Donald Trump per se. It's that you had so many young Christians and non-Christians who grew up maybe in an era where maybe the Clinton era where Christians were very, very interested in the moral character of the president and what was going on behind closed doors. And they were formed in that and taught in that kind of vein that this is a very important part of leadership. And then you had the people who had told them that now not doing that. And it left a lot of people unbalanced or off balance and wondering Wait a second. Is this is what you taught me to believe really what you believe or not? So I can point to yeah. This is and whether or not you agree with the and and this is not a and there are good reasons that Christian people will give for voting for Donald Trump. We're not making any of that argument right now. We're simply pointing out that this is a massive, massive thing. Uh, whether you like Trump or not, that needs to be dealt with. And the article is pushing at the direction of saying actually there are many churches and institutions that won't and aren't surviving this moment. Things are coming apart at the seams for a lot of historic uh, evangelical institutions and organizations. So it's 
again, we're not we're not jumping up and beating up on anybody for doing any one thing or not. We're just trying to say this article points to a thing that is actually there. Um, so Cameron and I can give ex- stories and testimony and experience about that. We're just saying from the life on the street of people trying to sort this out, this is a real thing. That's um, I don't know what else we want to say about that other than to say, yeah, we're not trying to cast any moral judgment on anybody for any of their decisions, but just point out that if you're not engaging this idea, you're probably missing a lot of the questions that young people are asking. You also saw this, there was some Barna data around that time that came out of why young people, why people leave the church when they went to college. I think 2% of it had to do with embracing a difficult idea from a professor and maybe over half of it had to do with political confusion in their home congregations. So, I mean, just if you look at the relative numbers there, one of those is a more significant reason for people leaving the church. Now, I'm not saying that churches, you know, people in churches don't have political opinions or anything. I'm just saying the whole idea of saying, oh, we need to do apologetics to train people to answer their professors well is a very, 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 very tiny slice of where the broadest impact for worldview and apologetic training needs to focus. Now, that's way easier for us to do as Christians, and so I think we often focus on what's easiest. But if we want to be honest about where the questions really lie, there's some massive, um, they're, they're just open wounds here that have yet to be sorted out. And I think that there's an underlying assumption here that we need to challenge in this episode, and it's very prevalent in the modern world. It's not unique to evangelicals at all. Years ago, Leslie Newbigin wrote a book called the, Gus- the Gospel as Public Truth. Most of us, if we're not careful, will go to the cultural default setting that is basically the gospel is private truth. Now, this comes out every time you hear somebody say, well, let's stay away from politics entirely. Now, let me just be careful here. I know what people are meaning. Usually, if we, if we give a good faith assumption here, what, what's meant when somebody tells you that in ministry settings or when you're discussing Christianity, what they mean is avoid unnecessary distractions that'll take you off course. So setting that aside, I get that, but that can lapse into the gospel doesn't really have a practical bearing on our day-to-day affairs. And I think we've talked about this before on the podcast, Nathan. We need to recover a more holistic understanding of what we mean by politics. And, the you know, when it, I mean, and essentially we're talking about our common life and the life of the public. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, let's just look at the gospel. The gospel is necessarily going to be a public truth because it has public outworkings. And by the way, everything has public outworkings. We are inherently relational creatures. One of the deep assumptions of our culture is basically the, what scholars have called the atomic assumption or the atomistic assumption. In the West, we're really good at taking things apart and seeing how they work. And we tend to think about things as discrete individual entities, including human beings. But that's just not true of human life. No, we're more like a net or a web. We're all interconnected because we are inherently relational creatures. So I'm saying a lot of really, I think, challenging stuff really quick, you know, very quickly here. Let me try to, I'll try to practically summarize it, and Nathan may supply some helpful metaphors. But look, there is no such thing as a purely private act. What you do behind the scenes, 
what you eat, what you consume, what you watch is forming you and in turn is going to affect people around you. There are There's a ripple effect, okay? So if you have truly surrendered to Christ, that has public outworkings. And so I think part of what I want to push against in some of these discussions, when we, so the three major issues that David Brooks highlights that are now and, unavoidable. And listen here, this is important because it's not just about politics. So the next three things are important. I'm highlighting what all, Cameron's about to say. And they're all public outworkings too. So the three, the three major items that David Brooks highlights are things that are definitely not safe to bring up at cocktail parties, definitely not safe to bring up in the pulpit, but all, I, I like that, Nathan, I like you said that, like what you said earlier, how if you're talking especially to younger people, these topics are unavoidable. They're extremely important. But so the three that he brings up are politics, specifically Donald Trump, racism and racial tensions, the need for racial reconciliation, and then the sexual scandals that have been rocking the church, especially the evangelical church. And this is, an, this is a poignant fact for both Nathan and I, because we came out of one of those scandals, which is actually named in this New York Times article. And so, and I think, and I think we could add a fourth one on there, Nathan. I don't know what you would say, but I would, I would say climate Ooh. justice should be probably on that list as well. Yeah, yeah, that's probably. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'd give that one a half star rating. I think it is half star. Yeah, well, hmm, I have to think about that one. It certainly is You're a big good. issue. I'm not sure that it's an issue that's splitting evangelicalism just yet. But not splitting we'll evangelicalism, but I think it's a it's a question that is prevalent, especially for a lot of younger people. But you can mull that over as oh, the sure. show goes yeah. on and then give us your definitive verdict at the end. I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. But yeah. what, why I'm bringing these up? Why? Because, first of all, they're central to Brooks's thesis. And again, we're going to link the article in the show notes. So have a look at it. But also, these are all public issues. They have, they have to do with our common life. They're not about private convictions. And I was thinking about this the other day, Nathan, as I was buying, you know, I was on the, on the way to the grocery store or something like that. What, one of the big shifts that it seems to me that has happened when it comes to the questions that will come in about Christianity, we have moved away from questions about what you believe to questions now about who you are. How does that strike you? Am I off base or does that make does that make some sense to you? We so let me let me say it again. We've moved from questions about what you believe to questions about who you are. Yeah. Is that what you I said? I think that's a Yeah, yeah that's well, what I said. Actually, so um I would my quick thoughts are yes and that's good. Um Yeah. Is that I, I don't know uh, exactly. So I mean, so we're so one. So one of the th the reason I would say it is good yeah, why is, it is good? that yeah. when we think about beliefs. So when we think about beliefs, and again, we'll pull a little new begin in here, where he's saying there's a separation in the way that people treat things that they see as values versus things that they see as facts, and we live in a time in which beliefs are held to be values, not facts. So um, what are examples that he gives of you know it's a it's a value to be a Christian or to have Christian beliefs. It's a, and, and we can say, well, that's, that's true for you. Not true for me. Mm -hmm. We're okay with that. But then in the other category of fact, if I were to say that, you know, Paris is the capital of Belgium, right. we would say, mm, no, that's not true for you. 
and true for me. So we have this delineated idea of values and fact. Belief is now almost exclusively thought of in the category of value, not of fact, which is one of the difficulties of articulating a Christian message in a modern era. And then, so if we can move from questions from what do you believe to questions about the way that you actually are, that actually is a higher degree of integration of consistency that I think people are seeking. So it's not to say that we, I'm not saying it's good in the sense that we use the individual as the measure of all meaning, but I am saying that it's good that we don't allow people to disconnect what they say they believe from the way that they actually behave and conduct themselves. So I don't know. You put me on the spot. That's my short answer. I've been doing that a lot uh, lately. Does that fit in with what you were thinking, or is that the opposite direction? <laughs> You've taken us way it's fun. off course. Just kidding. No, it, it no. It goes along with. Because I think it's a good thing too, because, and I've I think we've we've talked about this on the show numerous times as well. But you can say all sorts of things that you believe. But what you do will often communicate something very different. And once again, to take it back to Brooks' article, that's precisely what he's saying is the problem. A lot of young people are looking at their parents and other mentor figures, older people in their life, and they're seeing that what appears to be a pretty dramatic disparity between what they say they believe and then what they are actually doing. And so when somebody looks at you, and is interested in your religious convictions, and they're younger, I think they're much more interested in who you are as a person now than just what you say you believe for that very reason, because there's there's been such a marked disparity. And it's not just the evangelical movement, it's not just the church. This is happening in most, in so many of our cultural institutions. There's kind of a massive reckoning happening on a national scale right now where we are digging into all of our institutions. We're trying to part the curtains and look behind the scenes and see what's happening. And a lot of what we're getting is ugly. It's really alarming, I think, to a lot of people and to a lot of us, because we look back and we think, well, this is just, it seems to be an attitude that's characterized by pure destruction, a kind of zero sum game where we say, yeah, we've found some deficiencies. So the whole thing is rotten to the core, tear it all down and there is there is some of that mindset in the air that's partly because i think we're at a, a cultural moment where we have come so far from any kind of stability anything that would hold us together but on the other hand it's a necessary aspect of reform as well and true healing and true reconciliation and forgiveness in order if you if you want those things reform reconciliation forgiveness and earnestly seek them, there's a good deal of pain that has to be gone through as well because you have to face reality. And I think that the reality that a lot of American Christians are having to face is that their faith is indeed a public faith, and what they do matters to everybody around them and affects everybody around them. And we need to take full ownership of that again. So I think it's a time where... I'll use another R word here that I think is helpful, and Brooks uses it in the article. I think it's a time rife also for renewal. And maybe we'll, maybe we want to lean in that direction a little bit, Nathan, just as a, a word of challenge, but also encouragement. That's, by the way, also where my prayer is for thinking out loud to be, is in that renewal kind of space. 
Yeah, that's that's really helpful. And I'm glad you pointed that out, Cameron, because when I had said earlier that this article defines a lot of where we're coming from, it's our where we're coming from is not necessarily based out of um, it's not out of rebellion by any imagination. It's out of a deep love for something that we see to be good that has some significant pockmarks and maybe a flat tire here and there. But you and I, as members of young families and fun congregations say, no, but this is, this is where it's at. This is God's a plan. This can be fixed. Uh, we need, there's work to be done for sure, but this is a valuable thing to participate in. And if I can just add a, a quote from the, the very end, um, scroll down here to the end of the article to get this, I'd be interested to hear what you would say about this because, um, this is a quote from, let me get, get it lined up correctly here. Yeah. So this is from Karen Swallow Pryor and she said that modernity has peaked. And so I'd love to hear if you think this is true, but this is the rest of the phrase. And actually this is the conclusion to the article, the age of the autonomous individual, the age of the narcissistic self, the age of consumerism and moral drift has left us with bitterness and division, a surging mental health crisis and people just being nasty to one another. Millions are looking for something else, some system of belief that is communal, that gives life transcendent meaning. Christianity is a potential answer for that search, and therein lies its hope and the great possibility of renewing its call. Yeah, I like Karen Swallow Pryor a lot, and she, of course came out of Liberty University and has dealt with quite a bit of adversity in her own life for her some of the public statements that she's made. She's come under fire numerous times. So these the conclusions that she has drawn are hard won. I would just say that to to listeners who are maybe a little bit skeptical of her, even if if what she's saying is challenging and what she says frequently is challenging. She has not come to those conclusions lightly. And she actually points out that several years ago, maybe 20 years ago or so, she described herself as kind of a culture warrior. And she was very active picketing at abortion clinics and participating in activities like that. And so she has her her kind of sensibilities have undergone some real transformations which I hope is true of all of us, by the way, because she's she's growing as a person. Her convictions about the value of human life and the unborn and all that remain completely unchanged. But her approach to engagement has, I think, been refined over the years because of her experiences. Yeah, and as far as this quote goes, I think what's what's I think it's true, and part of what makes it a good challenge for all of us is how that attitude so often gets absorbed in our congregations. Now that makes perfect sense. Here's where I'm also going to I'm going to say something that we we say frequently on the show. Yes, the church is God's A plan for the evangelization of the world. It will be okay and this is nothing new. Okay. Did they have smartphones, you know, 100 years ago? No, but has the church always been in significant tension with the surrounding culture? Well, of course. Why is Paul's tone so bracing and, and frankly, just so frustrated in, in, in the opening of Galatians? <laughs> I love the opening. It's always, you know, greetings in the name of Christ. I'm Paul. And I'm, this is Cameron McAllister translation. And you know, he's all happy. And then all of a sudden he just pivots to, I'm surprised that you are so quickly falling away from everything that I've taught you in the gospel. So basically it's just, 
what is wrong with you guys? I want to shake you. And that attitude has never changed down the ages because it is difficult to be spiritual creatures in a culture that is passing away and a culture that is tremendously seductive. And that's never changed. Since the the birth of, of the church, that is a perennial feature of being in the world, but not of the world. So all that to say, this is nothing new. Smartphones and all of that aside, this is nothing new and it will be okay. I think part of what we need to do though is to, to be honest, sober up, and to use the word sober is to basically bring in language that Peter uses a lot in his in his two letters, which are very, I would say, very pertinent to our moment, first and second Peter. But he's, you know, we want to be sober-minded. That means we want to face reality. And a lot of that is very uncomfortable because frankly it implicates us. You know, in in Faith That Lasts, the book that I wrote with my dad, we we have in the, in the intro we have a, a paragraph that I that was where we say essentially, look, you often hear phrases along the lines of, "Well, we're in serious cultural decline." Well, this is a this is a period of pronounced cultural disintegration, and you see lots of moral insanity and you know just the moral imbecility all around us, and you know you hear a lot of phrases like this, but every one of those. We need to, if I think you can say those, but if you do understand that you are part of the problem, if it's a culture in precipitous decline and we're part of this nation and the gospel is public truth and we are relational creatures who have everything to do with everybody else, then we are necessarily numbered in that decline. We are part of the problem. We got to take ownership in our various spheres. In our, and I think, by the way, this, this starts on a local level. It's this. This is we've brought in the issue of virtue signaling before, and virtue signaling is easy because usually distance is your friend. You can highlight some issue that has no real tangible attachment to your life, where you don't have to lift a finger other than the finger that you're using to post an article. But think about your actual context, your community, your congregation, your office, your neighborhood. <laughs> so, and what role can you play there? Yeah, you're calling for a little bit of a Jeremiah approach here, of like this isn't going well. And I'm going with you. Um, you know, it's uh, off we go. Would you yeah. say, Cameron, part of the renewal and seek the here, welfare of the city? Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. The so maybe as we're thinking about what does this actual renewal actually look like, and what does it mean? It's not a call for strategic withdrawal from the church from culture. Actually, what we're saying is that the church needs to speak about more things and do it well. And when I say speak about more things. There are numerous issues. So you may have tensed up a little bit when you heard the list we gave. So politics, sexual abuse, racial tension. Okay. The, the, the thing that we have to, oh, and then we'll throw climate change in there just for Cameron. Um, the thing that we have to work so hard against is those are not primarily partisan political issues. If you're a Christian, those are primarily theological issues. Right. And that's the, the real difficulty here is saying, actually, there's a deeper theological foundation of this. This isn't sociology and, and politics first. If Christ is Lord of everything, then we have to operate from that premise and speak about these things and teach about them clearly, but as matters of discipleship and as matters of integrity and with a deep interest in the way that we are and the means by which we communicate these things, there has to be total integration in that. And by the way, I think there are wonderful ways in which we can do this. Um, 
So, for example, you know, remember Cameron back in the RZIM days, I gave a talk, I think it's still on YouTube, Is Environmental Justice Possible? Mm -hmm. I think that's still out there floating around yep. if you want to Google it um, and can ignore whatever labels that are in the background that no longer exist there. Fast forward to the part with the talk, not the Q&A at the beginning, um, where I make the case of, like, if you look at this as a theological issue, there are some elements in which you can be so theologically conservative that you appear to be politically liberal. Yeah. Uh, Genesis is pretty early on. Uh, it's pretty conservative to use that as a platform for um, environmental engagement. So all that to say is, I think that's where Cameron and I are coming from on this, on the thing of renewal. It's not that we don't think the church should be involved in these, it's that the church should be involved in these in Christian ways, in biblical and theological ways, where we show where our hope really lies. Let me give you a personal story that maybe illustrates this, Cameron. Uh, a long time ago, uh, West Virginia had a senator named Jay Rockefeller. And uh, the Rockefellers knew my grandparents. Uh, my grandpa was a preacher and farmer, and um, they babysat the Rockefellers' kids sometimes. And Jay enjoyed having somebody that he could ponder things with off the record with grandpa. And grandpa ran around a lot of the state doing a lot of stuff and was connected to certain things. And at one point, uh, in one of the elections, Jay wanted my grandpa to campaign with and for him for his upcoming Senate run. And my grandpa, even though he was friends with him, as a preacher said to him, Jay, he said, I know that, you know, you know that we're friends and that I like you. But he said, as a preacher, if I was to campaign for you, people might think that I've forgotten who the true savior of West Virginians really is. And so for him, it wasn't that he didn't like the guy necessarily. He was just saying that my role as a Christian, I dare not make it seem like my hope is in this system. Now, different people are going to draw that line at different places. But for him, it was very important to say, no, it's not that I'm disinterested in who you are and what you're doing. It's that that is not my, that's not where my hope is. And by me participating in this that might give people the false idea about where my hope comes from and where their salvation comes from. I think, you know, we would say, oh, that sounds archaic, and that was decades ago. But actually, I think that might be part of what we're seeing here from the younger crowd of saying, where do you think your hope comes from? Where do you think your salvation comes from? And so the church it can be a place where we can be engaged in all of these things and do it well, but we need to make sure that it's never done in a way that people begin to question where our real security comes from, where our real hope comes from, and who our Savior truly is, who our true founding father actually is, who our real master actually is, who our real teacher actually is. So, yeah, Brooks' article is disruptive. We could, we could wish that the world is other than it is, but I think it points to the way that the world actually is, where our culture actually is, and what a lot of the big questions that young people and you know what? Actually, I don't think it's just young people. Lots of people are flailing around. And we have to recognize also and be kind to ourselves. There's been a rapid shift. 2016 was very different than 2020, which was very different than 2021. Um, we're all in this together. Uh, things are changing quickly. But we're speaking to you as young punks who, in the midst of all of this, say, no, the church is still good. Uh, Christ is still in charge of this and has things for us to do. And there are things in which we dare not get distracted by and things on which we need to focus. So I'm, I don't, I mean, so the whole article is framed about and you see people saying, you know, are, 
Christians stepping back from this or critiquing things in order to save their own skin or in order to save their own moral standing or in order to try to cozy up to liberals or to be accepted by a more left-leaning political uh, ethos and era. And you know what? I bet there are Christians who are trying to do that. That's not us. Our hope and renewal and our willingness and at times need to separate ourselves from things is because we see it as a distraction from the goodness of the thing that we've been called to as Christians. And so I hope you can hear our heart in that. This isn't a condemnation of anybody or anything. It's an articulation of what we see happening in the world and the hope that we see for the church moving forward. So, yes, I'm for renewal, Cameron. I think it's a good word. And if I didn't think it was possible, I certainly wouldn't be uh, hosting this podcast with you and working in the broader ministry of thinking out loud together. So our existence is a stamp of our approval in the trajectory of this being a real possibility. Yeah, I think we we exist as a gesture of hope. And and I think that's a good prayer for, for those of us who are in the church right now and care deeply about the the culture at large, our nation and our local congregations and the the Great Commission. So I think let's let's work toward we'll do the hard work of working through some of this stuff, but also with great expectations in our heart, because we know after all the person who's in charge of everything and he has it under control. So, yeah, I know we've raised a lot of questions here. That's part of what we like to do. We want to stimulate thinking and think alongside with you. So we hope this episode has done that. Do check the show notes. We will chalk it full of stuff for you. We'll put the, the David Brooks article in there. We'll put Nathan's talk on environmental justice in there. And we'll throw in a bonus article from John Wilson, the former editor of Books and Culture, great thinker, who had a pretty cranky response to the David Brooks article, and his is in First Things. So just to balance the roster a little bit and to give you another perspective on that, we'll put John Wilson's article in there too. So have a look at that if you want to do some some further digging. But thank you so much for listening in. This is Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book one of our speakers, or make a donation, visit thinkingoutloudtogether.com. And lastly, if you'd like our podcast, spread the word. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating. It really does help.